Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlis. Hello and welcome once again to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as mostly always here with Richard Hill, managing editor and good mate. How are you, Richard? Look, I'm very well. Yes, we realized the other day that occasionally I'm sort of off doing something and, and I'm not here. That's right. Uh, but here I am. Y- yesterday, I spent most of the day working on the next magazine. So mm-hmm. that uh, is all still energetic and powerful. People don't don't forget uh, members, of course, uh, you know, uh, have access to the magazine. Not only the magazine, but they have access to uh, the individual articles, uh, some subsidiary articles, and if you work through it and answer a few questions, we can get a uh, an education certificate for a CEU point or yeah. two for your association. So keep uh, keep reading some really fascinating articles coming through, and segueing to fascinating, really fascinating person that we're talking to today, Matt. That's right. Uh, we're going across to talk to Sarah Schley, and she's the author of Brainstorm from Broken to Blessed on the Bipolar Spectrum. So really interesting book. So she has bipolar too. This is something that she's kept to herself for many years and uh, has decided sort of to, to come out and to write about uh, her experience with bipolar. Uh, she's a business consultant, a speaker, an author. She consults large organizations and uh, and companies. Um, but today, we're going to talk to her about bipolar. Sarah, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy. It's so great to meet you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, you guys. And Richard here, of course. Uh, it's wonderful after uh, uh, lots of backs and forwards and things and introductions to you. Uh, but it, it it is so exciting uh, to have you in. One of the things that we really love is people who know a lot, uh, and we have lots of those come onto our show, and we also love people who have lived experience, and we have some of those who come on the show, and we think we've got uh, a combination of both here, which is which is just perfect. And as we've described, your your what you talk about and what you have experienced is the condition that is broadly known just by the simple word bipolar. But you have written a fabulous book, and that book has been turned into a film. Now. When did you come to grips with this and decided then that you needed to to tell people about it? Thank you so much, Richard, for having me and for reading the book. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I usually start time here with my my first bipolar, what I call bipolar breakdown, which was a severe, severe depression when I was 21, a senior at Brown University here in New England, um, pretty much on top of the world, you know, with wonderful friends and a 4-0 and heading to med school and um, playing varsity sports, et cetera. And um, one day as if a switch had flipped, all of a sudden I went into this tailspin crashing to the earth and uh, with this terrifying brain breakdown that I had never experienced before and had no idea what was happening. So that was at age 21. Um, And it really, you know, to mention the gap took four decades for me to be willing to tell my story. Now, I know I don't look that old, but if I did look that old, (laughs) if we do the math, um, it was really almost four decades almost to the day before I was willing to, quote, come out with my story. 
I mean, interestingly, uh, you know, that's not an uncommon story. Um, there's there's the situation of of people uh, taking a long time to really come to grips with where they are. But one of the big problems uh, that I found in the conversation, Matt and I found in the conversations with people in my early experience, was the amount of time it took the medical profession to know what the hell was going on. Yeah. Uh, well, now, so absolutely. you had this, uh, this event at 21. Mm-hmm. When did anybody seem to come to grips with what it was? And what were the sorts of things that they thought it was before mm-hmm. they finally uh, uh, yeah. worked it out? Right. Well, I say this is the truth. It took 25 years, five psychiatrists and seven medications before I got my bipolar two diagnosis, which uh, saved my life, I think, because of the medications that I got as a result. Before that, there was four psychiatrists who got it wrong. And basically what happened was, and I talk about this in a book and in my TED talk, is that when somebody like me with bipolar two shows up in a doctor's office, be it your primary care physician, nurse, practitioner, psychiatrist, or whoever, you're going to show up with the depressive symptoms. You're not going to show up if you're feeling good. So if you're not, if it's a practitioner who's not super skillful, I'm going to appear with, you know, listlessness, suicidal ideation, maybe inability to experience any joy, wanting to, you know, uh, leave the planet. And they're going to say, oh, this person looks depressed. They're depressed. They're going to diagnose me with clinical depression and then give me an antidepressant. And the problem is with people, for people like me, you probably know, Richard, is that in a lot of cases, if you give a person with bipolar an antidepressant, it's going to make them worse. Um, it, it could start out looking like it's working and then trigger mania or all kinds of um, difficult, dangerous and even lethal side effects. So there you have it. Um, it, it finally took the fifth psychiatrist who was uh, very skillful and familiar with the whole bipolar spectrum to recognize what was going on for me and use a very simple diagnostic and get it right in 15 minutes. Right. And do you think part of that problem is looking just at the immediate symptoms that you're presenting with um, rather than taking comprehensive history and uh, considering the the other things that are that are masked at that moment when you're turning up? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I say that somebody who is a practitioner needs to have a lens around bipolar spectrum, because what I have is bipolar without mania. I don't have full-blown mania. And millions of people like me and some of the doctors I've been working with researching for the film will say that more than half the people with bipolar, significantly more, actually have some form of bipolar without mania. So it takes a skillful doctor to recognize it. But the but the um, the diagnostic scales are out there in the public domain. You can find it on my website now. And there, it's one page and like 11 questions. It's not hard to um, get on the right track of, of screening someone for bipolar if you think to look for it. And that's the key. Uh, uh, and the, the key of the thing that we're saying to a lot of uh, therapists and throughout the, the uh, science of psychotherapy work is the if you think to look for it and so it needs we need to know as as uh, therapists and as we're saying to a lot of therapists listening to this we need to know about stuff now we may not have to be experts but we're general practitioners we're broad scope practitioners and when someone comes into the room uh there are so many uh behavioral things sure that we can see that are talking to us about biological things which we can't see and uh as you say uh there is just a simple questionnaire 
that you can give to someone if you get this inkling of, okay, I think this is depression, but let's just check. And with a simple questionnaire, what is it, about 10 or 11 questions you were saying? Yeah, it's six, 10 minutes. I mean, I'll t- you guys are therapists, so I have to tell you, I've been to wonderful therapists in my life. Where we live out here, there's all kinds of brilliant people. One of them, after several years, and it, it took me, you know, like we said, 25 years to get the proper diagnosis. She came to me in tears. She was highly revered in our community, saying, I'm so sorry, I didn't know that this existed. You know, I, I turned you in the wrong direction. And then another one who's amazing, she's the one who said to me, you got to write this book, Sarah. My colleagues don't know that there's a bipolar spectrum, that there's bipolar without mania. She got me to, to get on the track of writing it. So I do think that um, for a therapist like yourself and, and the doctors that I've been working with now say, always screen for bipolarity with someone who looks depressed. Because if you get it wrong, you're going to do more harm than good uh, if, if they go off on an antidepressant track. It's so easy. Screen for bipolarity if you think this might be, if there's any chance it might be going on. So the hypermanic symptoms often, especially in today, um, they can be very functional. Um, and so it may not appear as uh, any sort of problem. Um, are you able to just speak to us a little bit about um, the hypermania and um, what that looks like and how that all plays into maybe not, not being diagnosed or misdiagnosing someone? Yeah. I, I mean, there's a spectrum there too, and it's subtle, right? So mm. I come from a family of high energy folks, you know, and if you saw me during the day, like when I was in, you know, coming up and even now people will say something like you get twice as much done as anybody I know. You know, but my husband also gets twice as much done and he's not bipolar. So high energy, you know, it's kind of an indicator. Um, but what's the difference between mania and hypomania? I have here one of your countrymen, Michael Burke. He's wonderful. Um, I think it was him or else Dr. Phelps, the four A's. <laughs> OK, so the four A's of hypomania are anxiety, anger, agitation and tension difficulties. It can also in addition to high energy. So if you have somebody who you gave an antidepressant or they're your client and you know they're on an antidepressant and all of a sudden, you know, they have this atypical hair trigger temper, which is what happened with me. I'm pretty even around temper. And my husband's like, what's going on here? You know, because all of a sudden I was like, had this um, this quick anger. Um, and for somebody else, it might be anxiety, agitation, anger, um, uh, attention stuff. That's, I guess, if it's in the dysfunctional phase, but there's also a phase of hypomania that's high energy and people feel good and they're not going to show up to their doctor because um, because they're not depressed, but they're also not going to show up to the doctor because they're not full-blown manic. You know, people who are full-blown manic, their their family takes them because they're up all night or they they think they're God or, or they're doing, you know, in, uh, irresponsible behaviors, maybe something dangerous. Uh, they, so in that case, it's easier to diagnose. It's easier to get to a doctor, right? But hypomania is tough, tougher to, to to identify. Yes, I, I remember Stephen Fry uh, in some of his specials. He was talking about a beautiful the English uh, raconteur who uh, lived with lizard bipolar, and he said uh, he would go shopping 
<laughs> but he was a highly successful uh, person, earning a lots of, lots of money. And people would think, oh, yeah, that's all right, you're, you're you're going shopping. He said, but you come round to my house, and uh, you know, it looks like I've 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 just had my wedding shower because I've got six toasters and four TVs and three vacuum cleaners, and you know, all, yeah. All, so that was um, that was one of one of the, the the aspects. But then on the other hand, I I've got a piece of film that I use in some of the presentations I do. And uh, uh, just on YouTube, um, uh, and a young lass sitting there, quite disoriented, quite uh, out of, uh, almost out of control, and she was almost, you know, eyes were, you know, wow, and I don't know what the, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know, and she was talking about this in her kitchen, and then a baby gurgled in the side and he said oh that's all right now and uh, just just it'll be fine oh the next minute i'll be lying on the floor and i won't be able to speak and i thought wow and you're at home uh so this this aspect of people who live with the with the experience with without really how are you how are you cared for in a situation where it captures you and you're just at home in the kitchen with the baby. If there's severe depression going on, because again, I haven't had that experience of, of mania that you're describing right now, I think. But, um, you know, it's tough, man. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky that I have a um, very supportive family, supportive husband. Uh, he likes me to always champion him, you know, but truly he showed up, man, day after day after day. Um, it is essential to have that kind of support. And I think for people who are family and potential fr friends and potential allies to understand that this person has a broken brain right now. It's not that they don't want to do the dishes they can't. It's not that they don't want to, you know, go shopping. They can't figure out how to pick out the peanut butters. It's not that they don't want to do the laundry. It's not possible to se sequence, you know, folding, putting away and figuring out clothes. I talk about this a lot in my TED talk because I want people to understand what I mean when I say broken brain. Uh, it's For me, it's, it's not just emotional, it's first physical, like the brain stops working. Um, it's terrifying, it's incapacitating, it's crippling, and you really can't do the day-to-day. -day. So um, I talk about, like for me, I have zero judgment of people in the streets. You know, because there, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, I've, I, if I didn't have jail and I didn't have my family, I didn't have people who showed up for me, who knows? You know, it's difficult. Is it useful for, yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, you've got your uh, list of people that, that are, are you can access. Is it useful for a therapist uh, who might be one of the people that, that the client, the person would call to, um, to sort of, organize a little bit of a referral list so that if if the therapist happens to get the call from the client they say oh now call your mother or call your husband or call uh, uh call this is is that something uh, and i'm just thinking that off the uh and i thought that before and i i do have some forward calling things to some of my clients yeah well here's how i talk about it richard because after the book came out, people would come to me and go, oh, my God, I'm deer in the headlights. Like, I don't know how to help my friend or I didn't know how to help my cousin. Um, what's your advice? So I actually wrote something up uh, around this. I call it the Emergency Mental Health Team Toolkit, and it's four things for allies. 
right? The first thing is reach in. Don't expect them to reach out. They can't. So as a therapist to say, call your mother, call your doctor, I'm not gonna. I can't find the phone. I can't find the phone number. I don't think they want to talk to me. I, my self-esteem is so low that, you know, why would my best friend take a moment to care for me? So can't, I'm not going to reach out. I need you to reach in. So I would more likely call the mother, call the best friend, call this one, call that one. Your instinct is good. It gets help for them, but the help has to reach in, you know, and then I say, help do the basics, fill the freezer, pick up the kids. They can't do it. You know, you would do that if as a cancer patient, you don't know you have to do it for this depressed person. It's not, you can't see. I mean, when I look at pictures of myself when I've been really depressed, I look like this. You can't, you can't see what's going on inside that person's brain, but believe me, you're going to have to, you're going to have to fill the freezer for them. Um, And the other thing is like a therapist, don't try to fix it. You can't just listen, listen without shame, without judgment or trying to fix it. And then the last one is, Get a posse because you're not going to be able to do it alone. You need support for you. So that those are the things that um, that I would encourage a therapist or a friend to do. Again, super lucky where I live. We have a lot of community. I was in a women's circle for 20 years, and they figured it out. Like one of them was was on point, and she said, "Okay, you're filling the freezer. You're picking up the kids. You call the psychiatrist." And you know, I don't know what I would have done without those women. Yeah. Now, uh, Sarah, no doubt you've had uh, both good and bad experiences with therapists. And since we're speaking to a lot of therapists today, um, I'm wondering if we can sort of touch on some of those experiences and sort of glean, you know, what what really is effective um, therapy for someone with uh, specifically bipolar too. You know, I've mostly had good experience with therapists. God bless them. The issue was that they didn't know what bipolar two was. They didn't know that there was a spectrum. They didn't. So I might've got bad advice until they figured it out or we got the diagnosis. Um, I might've gotten the advice like, which I got, oh, you don't need medication. Or if you just do this and this kind of thing, you're going to be better. But it turned out I really did need medication. Um, And some of the doctors that I work with, they talk about four things. I made it into a diamond. If you've got bipolar like me, you're going to need medication. You might need therapy from time to time. You need your support network and you need to do your practices for a healthy brain, which I can tell you about in a minute. Um, but at any rate, so I would encourage the therapist to um, help give, give them that framework, which practice for healthy brain, I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, they're going to need therapy. They're going to need support network. They're going to need medication. And then the other thing that um, I think is really crucial, and, and one of your colleagues pointed it out to me recently when he read the book. He said, when I read this, I started cheering out loud. And that is, I would say that therapists and psychopharmacologists, psychiatrists have to partner, right? The psychiatrist can't do it alone because they're just writing scripts and they don't know what's going on for you. But the therapist can't do it alone because they don't have the psychopharmacology background. And they really need to be partnering. At the end, when I finally got um, the diagnosis that worked and uh, the therapist that that the two of them worked together, which was really helpful for me emotionally, psychologically, to know I had the support from both sides, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. that's brilliant. And the, we we are always advocating for interdisciplinary, you know, sort of teamwork. Yes, absolutely, and it really needs to happen. And I got to say, all power to psychiatrist number five who who got it right, so to speak. He's got this guy's now eighty. He's got office hours every Monday through Thursday, 52 weeks a year from 9 to 10 p.m. 
you can call that guy. And when you're stressed out and meds not working, whatever, that's a huge support. And my therapist also could call him then. Um, So if you're any psychiatrists out there, do it, (laughs) you know, because that's been huge. Yeah, it's it's so important. Actually, in our, our our book, we include a section talking about medications. Uh, we're more specifically just sort of in there because we couldn't do everything. Uh, and therapists are saying, "Well, why do I need to know about medications?" Uh, and I said, "Yeah." And I used to say, and I, I said quite often, I said, "Not only does it gives you an understanding of of what the client is going through." And again, you don't have to know it to the point of of prescription. You just need to know about it. You know, what's the difference between an antipsychotic and an anticonvulsant and an SSRI? Uh, But it also gives you an insight into the mindset of the psychiatrist. And so you're immediately, just by looking at the the drug prescriptions, you're able to begin establishing a rapport with the other therapist. And uh, And there's nothing I would think that a psychiatrist enjoys more than a therapist who rings up and says, I've had a look at the medications and I understand that you're treating them for this, 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 and this. What can I do to help? Uh, Yeah, I mean, for the therapist listening to this, I think you should do it for every one of your patients that's on some kind of med. You need to call that psychiatrist and say, what are you thinking? You know, is this a mood stabilizer because you think they're bipolar? Is it, you know, is antidepressant because you think this? Uh, And really work together on that. Um, the other thing I really want your therapist to know, because most people don't, is if this person, the me, has been on antidepressant for a while and all of a sudden you notice or they notice that they're getting hypomanic, like you, their family's telling you, whoa, these guys are angry. They've never been angry before. All of a sudden they're anxious and they're up at night or all of a sudden, you know, they can't pay attention. For a therapist, that should trigger, oh, potential bipolar. This is hypomania and bipolar too. Let's talk to the psychiatrist about this. Because the therapist is going to have probably more consistent meetings with the with the um, person living with bipolar than the psychiatrist is, so you, they got to track that. And I tell that to families too, like track it, talk to the therapist of this person, give somebody feedback. Because um, in my case, I didn't really know that this yeah. was going on. My best friend and my husband said, "Whoa, that's a little quick trigger for you than usual," you know. But uh, so yeah, that's a sign. Pay attention. And just just quickly, I want to get to those practices for the healthy brain, but just a quick put in uh, that they, we talk about in the, the the system. They talk about bipolar one, which has yes. got a bit more of a combination of the manic and the depression. What might people might sort of term the you know sort of the more stereotypical, but it's not. Then there's bipolar two, which is more to do with. Uh, depression and not so much of mm-hmm. of the mania, and yes. this is distinguishable and needs to be distinguished from what we call unipolar depression. Yes, which is yes. Um, so everybody get out there and just remind bipolar, unipolar. They're uh, they're distinct, they're different things, and also in the anxiety frame. So just as a quick uh, education there, and now this wonderful thing practices for the healthy brain. Yeah, I love the sound Just of that. Just before I jump into that, Richard, I should mention, you know, the subtitle of the book is From Broken to Blessed in the Bipolar Spectrum. And even though I have a bipolar 2 diagnosis, which is helpful and clear, I just want people to know that like everything else in life, it's a rainbow. It's not super clear, black and white. Um, and so you may not fall specifically in the bipolar 2 classic, but you've got some form of bipolar without mania. 
you know, so, so those are important. They, you can um, respond beautifully to bipolar medications, mood stabilizers and stuff. So the spectrum is interesting. And we talked about Dr. Jim Phelps. He has a brilliant website called psycheducation.org and talks all about that mood spectrum. Um, okay, so practice for healthy brain. Uh, you, so I mentioned the four things, right? Therapy, medication, support team, and then the practices. And it turns out that I don't know if by, by like, um, constellation or how I was trained or personality or something, I have the, I have the, um, gift of being disciplined. All right. So once I started learning that these eight thing one, if I get into a bipolar flare, it's disaster. It's living hell and disaster. So what's on the other side of that for me, the risk of that is massive. Then thing two is, oh, there's things you can do to help prevent. Okay, let's do those. And now that I'm doing them, I've been doing them for years, but as a result of research for the film, I'm finding out there's a lot of um, really solid, rigorous scientific data to support some of the things I've been doing. Um, so I call them PECs. It's easy to remember, acronym PECs, flex your PECs. They stand for physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual. So if you're bipolar out there, or if you're a therapist helping somebody, um, doing practices in each of these domains can really help support you from and help be part of that constellation of medication, therapy, et cetera. You can have agency and be proactive and take some control over your genetics, you know, this way. Um, so for me, physical, okay, I'm lucky I was an athlete. I like doing aerobics anyway. I'm out there hiking. I'm out there swimming. Moving your body is huge. Um, stretching emotional, social, or the things we've been learning. We learned from the pandemic that isolation is disaster. And <clears throat> from some of the scientists we talked to, and I think the guy was from Australia, you can actually find um, markers for inflammation uh, in people who've had isolation. It's like, there's like markers for isolation in the blood, but that's a little bit of a digression. Um, so doing things that are emotionally connected, not just on the screen, but in real life. Um, it has a huge impact, you know, so it's, you know, I say you can be efficient, go on a hike with a buddy, you know, or go to chorus with your neighbor who dragged me to chorus the last time I had a depressed and it was very helpful and um, we've been singing for seven years. Um, in creative is uh, all those kinds of things like drawing or painting or cooking or writing. I'm a writer. I love to write. I'm not a, I'm not a drawer, uh, but something that helps you get on the other side of your brain and more expansive in your brain. And then uh, spiritual would be, you don't have to be a religious person if you are great, but otherwise a meditation or just get outside, unplug from technology and, and breathe the air. You know, they call it forest bathe. Uh, so those are some examples of pecs, but you do what works for you. Um, and you find, don't try to do it all. If it comes overwhelming, try one, one thing a day. Um, some of the other really important is coming up time and over and over again now in the research for the film is um, circadian rhythms are so key for people with bipolar or more sensitive to light. You've got to get to bed by 10 or 1030. You've got to have a steady bedtime and get up at a steady time. That's hard for us. Because particularly if we're in a bipolar flare, we're more, we feel better way at two in the morning, but setting up that steady sleep. So I'm pretty disciplined about that. You know, they'll go, oh, just watch one more episode of, you know, Ted Lasso. And I'm like, no, I got to go to bed, guys. Yeah. <laughs> no. So that, that, that's all part of the, the first one, the physical. Yeah. Uh, yes. about and and would, would diet, is that 
sort of have you found is there diet is huge. Um, yeah. Yes. So you know you could get super strict about this and get overwhelmed. Um, but one of it's sort of classic, you know, try not to have this like high sugar. Um, one of the things we're learning though is there's this huge gut brain connection and the microbiome, which is inside your gut and other parts of your body. Um, they've proven now that um there's a big research area, this guy called John Cryan in UK. He wrote a book called The Psychobiotic. I don't know if you guys interviewed him yet. And um they've they've made a connection between, you know, a lot of neurotransmitters are made in your gut, but also your immune system. So the diversity of flora. Um, uh, so I do like kombucha or miso or sauerkraut or yogurt, kefir, find something that you like that's a fermented food. That's going to be really important. Um, and that's, that's been good. And yeah, then so I just, and I'll just quickly refer people because we actually did a, a, a documentary, one of our documentaries on the gut brain axis and on all this stuff. Oh, cool. So we're, we're right up with you and, and yeah. you're right, right up with the, with the stuff. So it's. Yeah. It's and then another important. one that's a little tough for. Uh, you know, again, discipline, but you could sort of work up to it. What I've been learning from the whole circadian rhythm story is that you also don't want to eat after a certain hour because your body needs to shut down and shifts its metabolic processes and sort of goes with like five, four billion years of history of how the earth turns. You guys are ahead of me by a day. It's Thursday, it's Wednesday, we're on. But, um, but uh, so we weren't designed to be doing metabolic activities really late in, in the night. So you want to give your your metabolic stuff a chance to take a break. So I've been doing a 14 hour thing for a while now since COVID being like, you know, finish eating by seven, starting nine in the morning. You could start with 12 work up. But I found out that that's actually um, proven by the microbiome theory and the circadian rhythm theory. Right. So you're saying that my staying up to midnight watching Netflix and eating sweets is no good. If you're bipolar, really not good. If you're not bipolar, still not good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's what they say. Yeah, I think it's true. Try to get your kid. I mean, my kids are 21 and juniors in college and they're like, you know, get, they're getting strep throat or whatever. I'm like, you guys, you got to get to bed before two in the morning. <laughs> there's, there's, there's such a, it's such a surprisingly difficult thing because this development of the world, which is the 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 radical social and cultural changes, just over the last two two hundred years or so since the industrial revolution, have have taken our 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 mentalizing, our thinking by storm, but they've actually been beating our bodies around like a you know like a sad sack of of Stuff and what you're talking about and all those things. I just wrote down as I was uh, I was writing. Just maintain a whole experience. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's extraordinary. My my wife's a body worker and and she oh, says cool. uh, years ago we were saying, and she said to someone they said oh exercise you know, and and she said listen sixty to seventy percent of your body does nothing but move you, muscles, tendons, things you know aspects of the brain that do that. So I think movement's probably pretty important. Yeah, smart. And, and Absolutely. So, That's so, how yeah. we got to catch a deer, you know. We're going to eat. We had to run. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and those and those imperative needs, that, that's exactly right. We, uh, uh, I mean, there's a degree to which, I mean, this type of, of uh, capacity for us to move into all kinds of different mental states uh, and we have dispositions which incline us, like you have a biological disposition which inclines to move you towards bipolar, is going to be um, 
are only exacerbated if we're moving way beyond the 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 nature of the body. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so it's not about being weird about it, but it's certainly about not being weird the other way, as you say, Matt. And I'm, yeah. Matt doesn't actually sit up till midnight eating sweets, but he was yeah. on occasion. And again, that is that's another thing. Uh, on occasion. Um, we are organised as a species uh, over many, many hundreds of thousands of years to feast and to famine, yeah. to, okay, to do fine. the extraordinary yeah, every now and again. is fine. Yeah, and I once one night a week, I'm, I am a Shabbat practitioner. That's a different book, Richard. <laughs> but um, uh, one night a week, it's like all things are on. Anything goes, you know, which is good because you want to have like a, a release valve, you know, so you're not feeling so um, deprived. But I think, but the discipline over time, you find that your body just feels better and you feel more stable. Um, and that's true for anybody again. But for people like me with a bipolar brain, it's it, there's just so much more at risk. And so taking those pre precautions, if you want preventive medicine is really key. I got to tell you two more, you ready? Um, because you talked about how we've evolved, you know, to be up all night. Well, you know, those little lights in your room, that's like your alarm clock and the little thing of where you're plugging in is a little red dot or whatever. Those lights are really bad for us and they screw up our pituitary. So Dr. Phelps, and this is also proven, talks about quality darkness at night. You got, I put on the eye silk mask, you want pure black. And then related to that is um, the blue light that comes off of screens messes up us up because if we're doing it too late it screws up our melatonin production so after a certain hour you shouldn't be on screens at all or you can wear these amber glasses uh, that filter out the blue light so it, uh, at night i got my amber glasses on when i'm trying to do the new york times crossword puzzle <laughs> you know and then i try not to stay up too late and then the silk mask comes on so it's black um yeah that that is yeah. so important. Yeah. You know, once upon a time, I used to be a uh, a paramedic and would work, you know, rotational, you know, night shifts and that, and would really, you know, stuff up your circadian rhythm because you were never in a in a pattern. But what was absolutely essential was to be in a blacked out room when you did get a chance to sleep. Um, and temperature was important too. It had to be cool. Yeah. Oh, so you had to be in a cool, blacked out room um, to simply survive doing rotational shift work. Wow. So yeah. yeah. Totally understand how yeah, that's. I mean, all. somebody with bipolar can't really do the third shift. They can't be flight attendants. They, I don't mean to say can't, but it's it's dangerous because the circadian rhythm thing is really so important. I mean, I would be nervous about coming to visit you because the twelve hour times are difference would screw me up. So you know, maybe take a boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, take a just, while. But just on the lights thing, it, 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 my wife is particularly aware of it. She's she's wonderful. It, 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 it's like a melding of brains, and and more or less I get looked after. But in at hotel rooms where there's always these little red lights and TVs yeah. and bits and pieces, and yeah. uh, I'm sent out, uh, sent off on uh, kill the lights uh, patrol. So in the morning there's various pairs of underwear and towels <laughs> and, and right. things hanging over stuff. So, yep. um, so, but but what I'm actually telling the story for, besides a bit of a laugh, is we also make it fun. Um, yeah, yeah. So instead of going, oh, these lights, what are we going to do? And I say, oh, I'm on underwear patrol. And, and yeah, and it, my and, amber glasses. My kids are telling me that my amber glasses are pretty cool, so I look like Sting or something. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you got to, like you said, you got to make, you got to make it fun. 
Yeah, life is always a always a fun thing. Now, of course, you wrote the book. Uh, it came out in 2022, uh, the, the Brainstorm from Broken to Blessed, I love it, on the bipolar spectrum. And then uh, you got, well, you started then going out talking and presenting as say TEDx you've done and various other bits and pieces. So here you are talking to us. Yeah. But you got involved in this film, Brainstorm the film. And, uh, you know, we'll have links and connections to all these, uh, you know, website and everything in our show notes. But tell us about that because we love doing films and uh, what, a, what a great opportunity this was. So cool. First, I just got to show you the book. Oh, yes, I love, please. I love my cover. It's still love my cover. And yeah. uh, so that's that's the book. I hope you guys will get it. Oh, my um, favorite I thing's the butterfly. Us, no, we got we got that. It's all right. A lot of yeah. people tell me it's a really good read. So um, you couldn't put it down. Amen. Uh, the film. So what happened was, Richard um, I, and Matthew, I uh, I was terrified to come out with my story. I really was because of the stigma. I was afraid I was going to lose clients of consulting practice, um, that I would feel shame and uh, my kids might be um, feel shame and et cetera, et cetera. I my heart pounded before I came out with this thing, but I finally decided to do it. So, but once I'm out, I'm out because the mission of the book is to end the stigma, save lives, maximize healing. I want to shout from the mountaintops. I want to sell a million copies. And um, truly, I have to say, it's dedicated to my mother and my grandfather because this lineage goes back. Uh, and I, oh, if one person could not suffer because this book it was worth it, right? So, but let's sell a million, let's get 2 million views. Well, so the story goes that um, uh, got a pack of friends from college. One of them, we're on a little, a little uh, reunion that a friend of us had organized. One of them is this brilliant filmmaker named Bonnie Walsh. And I got the idea. I said, hey, Bonnie, what do you think? Because Bonnie had just had um, a film called Earth Emergency on PBS National. That's our, I don't know what the equivalent is in Australia, but that's our national um, public broadcasting system. That's a big deal. It's hard to do. So she had a national Earth Emergency broadcast. And I said to her, hey, Bonnie, she'd read the book and she was moved by it. Um, and it written me a beautiful thing back. Could we do uh, a PBS film on Brainstorm, the bipolar spectrum? And she goes, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So she says, well, you can't do a PBS film. You have to make a best film you could and then try and pitch it to them, you know, see if they take it. But let me ask Melanie. So who's Melanie? Melanie is um, Melanie Wallace, and she is from um, Nova in Boston, which is the big PBS science series she's been in it's very well um regard highly regarded she's been in there 40 years as senior producer she has emmy emmys etc and at first melanie thought nah, bipolar's been done but then she read the book she listened to the book she read the ted she listened to the ted talk and she met me and she said this is a story that has to be told so now i got my director and producer then we need to get some funding. And we had an anonymous donation from a wonderful doctor who's dedicated to bipolar, two to the bipolar mood spectrum. Then we got another amazing donation from a friend who has two bipolar children. Um, so we're underway. And uh, and then what happened, we started to collect, attract amazing characters who have lived experience of bipolar, who are living with bipolar. Um, because the, the Bonnie and, and Melanie are science documentarians. So we wanted to create an unprecedented thing, which would be a coherent narrative 
people living with bipolar who have amazing characters, um, the science, the cutting edge breakthrough science, and then uh, breakthrough treatments and wellness practices like PECs. So we'd weave that story. So we've been um, meeting these amazing people I can tell you about. We've also been talking to unbelievably brilliant scientists from around the world. That's a very exciting project. That's that's really brilliant. So so you're still in a like a pre-production stage at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're interviewing scientists. We're meeting people. We're fund- raising funds. Um, Bonnie thinks that we'll start shooting somewhere in um, summer, and then hopefully be you know the film will be ready 2025. I guess a couple of years. Okay. All right. Well, we'll certainly point people um, in your direction um, in terms of funding if anyone wants to support oh, that wonderful. project. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're twenty five percent of the way towards our budget, half a million towards two million, and then the other thing is if they if people want to stay involved and hear about the film, we're going to do mini films as we go. They can go to brainstormthefilm.com. We'll be in your notes and um, just click uh, stay in touch. You know, contact us. Yeah. The shocking thing about this, because there's so much shame and stigma around it, and I'm thinking I'm part of the walking wounded, is to learn about all these magnificent people with bipolar creativity and drive and innovation. But I, um, my editor, uh, when I was still afraid to come out with a book, she gave me an assignment, go home and write, I'm bipolar and a better person because of it. And I wrote a two-page essay, and at that point, I was ready to press send. And so I came up with four things that tends to be my thing, four things. Um, so I'll tell you the four things if we have time. So basically what it is, is that we have emerged like Phoenix from the ashes, having been to hell and back. Right. And when you go through that excruciating experience and and you live through it, it develops some qualities of character and soul. Um, one is emotional fearlessness, which is that there's nothing you could do to me, Richard or Matthew, that my brain hasn't already tried to do to me to kill me off. So you will not scare me and I will not leave you. Um, another is compassion, which is related, but there, but for the grace of God, like I said, I could be in the streets or needle in my arm or worse. I will not judge you uh, for your addiction or anything else. And then the next thing is discipline because I know what's on the other side of not doing the preventive pecs so I can help you with your pecs. And people in my family go, and my friends, you're to my North Star on self-care. How do you do it? And I'll say, okay, we'll come. You know, and then the last thing is just uh, is just gratitude, like beyond beyond compare, which is contagious. Uh, and you know, people say, "Wow, you know, how, how does that happen?" Well, because I've been to hell and back. And when you've been to hell and back, and you have a day where your brain is working and your body's working, uh, it's truly a miracle. So, wow. so they, miracle. those are some very powerful characteristics coming out of your experience. Uh, and a wonderfully beautiful conclusion to this uh, this experience today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. Total delight to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Bye. Ah, oh, Matt, I just love somebody uh, who has lived experience, but then yeah. goes off and learns and understands yeah. uh, that beautiful way she's able to to categorize various practices, various uh, ways of looking at issues. She's mm-hmm. able to see the breakdown. There's nobody categorized, is what I call. She's able to differentiate into the elements. Oh, yeah, and Look. that helps us understand so much better. There's there's so many things i have therapists uh if you didn't do that you know if you're listening while you're walking or something go back and listen again and have a, a notepad because there's the three of these and the four of that 
beautiful descriptions all the way through. Yeah, look, a very clever and articulate uh, mm. woman here to explain, you know, not only the mechanism but the lived experience. I, I loved her um, that that acronym, you know, PEX, mm. physical, emotional, creative, spiritual. And uh, uh, afterwards, when we stopped recording, you know, there was so much more um, to talk about. So we we definitely will have to get her back on the show. Oh yes, yeah, we go we'll a do. bit. A bit deeper. Oh, yeah, and talk to her about the film and talk to some of yeah. her experts uh, with her. And uh, uh, and it's so important because it's so little understood. Mm. It's not ununderstood, but it's little understood. And people hear about it, but this is the whole point of the 21st century therapist. We need to be aware and have an insight and have the preparedness to check just to test and to think that there's just a simple 11 question uh, uh little questionnaire which can give you some potential insight into whether you should look further or not it's pretty simple it's pretty simple yeah yeah and and although the paper test you know it, it seems like you know it's just very basic and simple i think it belies some very sophisticated um thinking and understanding behind yeah. it and and, yeah. and research yeah and yeah. and remembering that all these things are just Elements that take you another step further, mm-hmm. as uh, uh, as Lucas Lino says, you know, let's not have hardening of the categories. <laughs> it's actually using and utilizing the the categories as part of a complex understanding of uh, what is uh, potentially going on within this individual. Uh, and so all these tools are not to categorize and reduce; they're to open up and expand. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Uh, once again, Richard, it's been been wonderful. Thanks for supporting us um, by, you know, jumping across to YouTube and uh, liking our channel. And uh, if you're a professional, come across to thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. We'd love for you to be part of the tribe there. So for now, Matt and I bid you a fond farewell. <laughs> Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.